I'm Dr. Hugh Ross, and you're listening to Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens. Welcome to another special combined episode of Apologetics Profile and Good Heavens. I'm your host, Watchman Staff Apologist Daniel Ray. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. On this episode, we conclude our fascinating and very enlightening conversation with Christian astrophysicist and author, Dr. Hugh Ross of Reasons to Believe. This week, we finish up our conversation about aliens and UAPs, UFOs, and get into some of the fascinating discoveries of the new James Webb Space Telescope. The telescope has officially been in operation for just over a year now, with President Biden unveiling the telescope's first deep field picture of distant galaxies back in July of 2022. So what has the telescope uncovered? What new insights have astronomers gained from these discoveries? If you have been following the news about the telescope, you have probably heard that some scientists have even put forth the idea that the universe is much older than 13.8 billion years. While we do not discuss the age question, Dr. Ross does share with us his particular perspective and interpretation of the telescope's discoveries. One of the most startling discoveries thus far has been the existence of bright, fully formed, massive galaxies in regions of the universe where astronomers once believed only the first stars were beginning to form. Some astronomers have even called these newly discovered galaxies universe breakers because they seem to be inexplicable within the current variety of Big Bang models. So come and hear what Dr. Ross thinks about this. He will also explain to us what those elongated streaks of light are in several of the James Webb images of galaxies. Here on part two, Dr. Ross and I also discuss the problem of the laws of physics in relation to aliens and UAPs. Many UAP enthusiasts appeal to the idea of whatever these UAPs are, they are able to transcend our known laws of physics. And yet, many of these same supporters of UAPs will deny the possibility that UAPs and all their physics-defying behavior could in any way be related to the Bible's description of angelic beings. People who do not believe in God have no explanatory foundation for how something could defy the laws of physics. For as Dr. Ross points out, these laws are fixed and have been ever since the beginning of time. There is no scientific or empirical evidence to suggest otherwise. Those with an atheistic or naturalistic worldview finally are bereft of an explanation for the behavior of UAPs. Whereas the Christian worldview shows that there is a realm beyond the physical world which is capable of interacting with this world and behaving in ways that are beyond our limited understanding of physical laws. As we discussed last week, much of what underlies UAP and alien theory is a distinctively anti-Christ narrative. This is a crucial aspect of UAP and alien stories. Consider, why would highly intelligent beings from another dimension or world be so keenly interested in denying the lordship and divinity of Jesus Christ? 
The only worldview with the requisite ability to explain UAP and alien phenomena is Christianity. As Dr. Ross will show, neither aliens nor the findings of the most advanced space telescope are any threat whatsoever to your faith in Christ. There are, however, a race of fallen angels who would like you to believe just the opposite. We hope these episodes will further encourage you to recognize the wiles and schemes of the devil and remind you to be donning the full armor of God when you enter into this topic to minister to someone who really does believe in aliens. As Dr. Ross shared with me, those who are intentional about engaging others with the truth of the gospel might encounter from time to time some demonic opposition. So be on the alert and rejoice, not that you have power over such entities, but that your names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. You know, I've been in ministry now for four decades, and uh, a lot of this goes back uh, quite a few uh, years. Uh, but one thing I did write uh, decades ago is that there's another way you come into uh, contact with these beings, and that's where you're be actually ministering to someone uh, who's deep into the occult or demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. And uh, it's not uncommon for the demons to try to scare away the Christian that's having a positive impact. And what I share with Christians is if that ever happens to you, you need to rejoice. That means your ministry is having a positive impact. The demon wouldn't be trying to scare you off. Uh, you're actually a threat to the demon. And so, and the way to get the demon to back off is just start praising God. Hey, you know, uh, my ministry here is having an effect. The Holy Spirit is using me. The demons need to hear that. Take that as a positive sign when that happens to you. Yes, because a uh, secret, I when I became a Christian 30 years ago, Dr. Ross, that stuff began in my life, and I had no recourse or resource to for help. I didn't know what it was, and pastors and other Christians didn't know what was going on. And I've had since wiser folks tell me, since it doesn't completely go away, that what you just said, that I'm— God has got some kind of mark on me or something, or I'm occasionally being effective for the gospel in some sense. But uh, I appreciate you, sh you sharing that. It's very important, and I, I thank you so much for, for that insight as well. Well, th that brings us, Dr. Ross, to, to the issue of of what I want to say, because I can, I can hear the objections. I've, I've dealt with them before in, in talking to skeptics. They will just say Christians are closed-minded because of the fact that maybe these— beings or life is just really they appeal to something beyond our current knowledge of physical laws so it seems to be on the one hand the skeptics are quick to deny anything that transcends physics so long as it's not non-physical but they do nevertheless like rogan and corbell were doing appeal to things that are beyond physics, what we would term in the Christian sense as transcendent or maybe even somewhat miraculous or metaphysical. So there seems to be a duplicity there where, on the one hand, they're very quick to criticize by appealing to things that we don't yet know. Science hasn't yet figured it out, but it will. Uh, but then they're quick to deny anything that, that might transcend physics from a metaphysical or a religious or specifically Christian perspective. Do you encounter that yourself? Well, you see that in David Grush's testimony before the U.S. Congress. 
He claims that our U.S. government has these alien spacecraft, where these alien spacecraft have been designed to overcome uh, the law of gravity and other laws of physics. Uh, but these are physical craft. And, uh, you know, right away, uh, the physicists listening to this said, there's no way that's credible. Nope. We astrophysicists have been looking everywhere through the universe, everywhere through space. As we look far away, we're looking back in time. So we astronomers can actually observe 100% of the past history of the universe. And we've been searching for decades, some time or place in the universe where the laws of physics uh, don't apply like they do in our laboratory. And what we discovered is they do. There's nowhere we can go uh, where we don't see the same physics that we see on Earth in our laboratories. In fact, astrophysicists have been trying to determine how about the laws and constants of physics? Were they different in the past? Were they different in other parts of the universe? And we now know is that they haven't changed by one part in 10 to the 18 uh, over the entire history and uh, geography of the universe. The laws of physics are phenomenally uh, constant. They're fixed. And, you know, I'm encouraged as a Christian because the Bible says repeatedly that the laws of physics have not changed. Uh, Jeremiah 33. That's what I was thinking of. God speaks to the Jews. Yeah. And he says to the Jews, you change your mind all the time, but I'm a God that's immutable. I don't change. As proof, look at the laws that govern the heavens and the earth. As they don't change, I don't change. Mm -hmm. Well, we astronomers actually have measurements to prove that what God said in Jeremiah 33 indeed is a case. Everywhere we look in the universe— we see these constant laws of physics, which means it simply is not credible uh, where people like David Grush claim, hey, here's a physical craft that can violate the laws of physics. If it's a physical craft, it can't violate the laws of physics. It's like perpetual motion machines. You're never going to get a patent for a perpetual motion machine because it's based on the principle that uh, your machine can violate entropy. And, uh, you know, physicists have known for centuries that's simply not possible. So never invest in anybody who has a perpetual motion machine. The only thing I think that might last forever that was man-made would be a, a plastic bag. <laughs> <laughs> they seem to be everywhere. Um, so I know this is a this is a, a, a question that, that we can only guess at. But um, why would somebody like David Grush take this story to such a high level, Dr. Ross, if it's not true. Well, I read his written uh, statement that he made, he prepared before he testified before Congress. And, uh, you know, I think he's been listening to people uh, like myself and Alan Hynek and Jacques Vallée, uh, who've been studying the UFO phenomena and uh, how they say we're dealing with something interdimensional we're dealing with something outside the laws of physics. And, you know, being a relative layman, I think David Grish, Grish conflated that, well, uh, these are craft that can violate the laws of physics. That's not what these physicists were saying. They're saying we're dealing with beings or phenomena that are not subject to the laws of physics. And so I think that's 
I'm trying to be generous towards David, but I think that's really probably what's happening. He heard these statements and he misinterpreted the statements. And it's and it's to be noted too that I think he's even testified that he himself has not seen anything that that he's talking about. Is that correct? I I think that's what I heard. That's correct. That's also correct for all the other people who have been making similar claims. Uh, when you put them on the spot and say, have you actually touched an artifact? No. Have you personally seen an artifact up close? No, but I've heard stories. It's always secondhand stories or thirdhand stories. And, you know, that doesn't stand up in a court of law. So this, I guess, similar story to the gentleman in the 1980s, what was his name, Bob Lazar? Um, mm-hmm. He seems to be similarly like a, a David Grush uh, in terms of his credibility, his family, people that know him say he wouldn't make this stuff up. Uh, but he's also speaking in terms of heresy or heresy, hearsay, um, in terms of what he's he, – he claims to have been working on reverse engineered uh, materials and technology. Um, and people have tried to pick apart his story, but but something seems to be um, – he, something there seems to be something about David and, and Bob that seem to make it more credible, but but it seems like this is just another chapter in passing along what they've heard, not necessarily right. what they've encountered themselves. And what is the evidence for the reverse engineering? They keep talking about reverse engineering, but then what do we see? Well, I mean, the best I've seen them say is, "Well, look at the pyramids that the Egyptians built." Well, I got a book coming out later this year where I have a chapter on the history of astronomy cool and i point out that these ancients weren't stupid no (laughs) Uh, and you know you look at stonehenge it's a stone observatory and if you don't have a telescope you need to build these stone structures they're basically like gun sites and if you stand like 300 yards behind these stone structures you can use the stone structures to make very accurate naked eye position measurements of stars and planets. And people think that Stonehenge is an exception. It's not true. We now know there were thousands of similar stone observatories built all over the world. And with these stone observatories, and given the labor and the time that these ancient peoples were putting into their structures, they didn't need uh, any uh, help. They didn't need right. any technology. Right. They had everything they needed. Uh, to achieve what they did. It's just that we have this 21st century hubris where we think we're more intelligent, we're more advanced. I mean, I've read books by theologians who claim these ancient peoples had no interest in astronomy, no interest in cosmology. They were scientifically ignorant. But when you actually look at the history of science, none of those claims are true. No, the ancient people knew uh, they knew a lot more about it than uh, than we did for sure. Well, they were just as curious as we are about, about the natural realm, and they invested heavily. I mean, at one time in the Egyptian Empire, they were pouring twenty five percent of their gross national product uh, into astronomy. How much do we put in today? Point zero two five percent. So it's like you can make the argument they're even more motivated to study science. Than we are today. Wow, that's fascinating. I don't know if you uh, ran across this, but back in the 90s, I think, some students in uh, Oxford or Cambridge or somewhere, I don't know, it may have been the United States, 
made the news on CNN. They they built a replica of Stonehenge and called it Fridgehenge. They made it out of old refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how useful it was, but I just that just came to mind as you said Stonehenge. But uh, let's talk about our our human fascination with the cosmos, Doctor Ross, because we have a something of a of a twenty first century version of Stonehenge up in the cosmos right now. Several of them. Um, but the one I'm thinking of primarily is is the James Webb, which is giving us an eye to the sky that we have, and uncovering things that no human eye has 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 seen, and has enhanced some of the images that Hubble has taken over the last three decades. Uh, what, if you could, let's let's switch gears a little bit from aliens to to what James Webb is finding. Um, I've I've read the popular articles, and that's about as much as I can digest. I don't know the hard science that's going on behind these things, but it seems what's making the news, at least what I've noticed, is that uh, James Webb has discovered uh, physical structures in the earliest part of the universe, and by, by what I mean physical structures are black holes and fully formed mature galaxies in, in regions of the earliest part of the universe where they thought they might find... Uh, well, they didn't think they'd find these these behemoths. So it seems like there's something of a, of maybe a to put it this way, a Cambrian explosion of uh, galactic information that has come forth. That uh, we have these fully formed, mature galaxies in a very early part of the universe, with no apparent progenitors that precede them. And this seems to be cutting into the developmental evolutionary construct of Big Bang cosmology in terms of the initial experiment and the initial observations. Um, first of all, did I get that right? And second of all, what do you think the implications are for, for uh, Big Bang cosmology and the models that we have today in terms of what Webb has uncovered so far? Well, James Webb has been doing astronomical research for only one year. So we're in the first year of uh, the planned uh, research project. And uh, I've been posting on my Facebook page and Twitter page uh, the latest images coming out of the James Webb and basically giving lay people uh, a two or three paragraph description on the scientific implications of what's been discovered. But also as an astrophysicist, pointing out to people, hey, here's where my take is different from what you see on the web. You're seeing a lot of popular web articles that are saying, as you pointed out, hey, we're finding uh, big, bright galaxies way earlier in the universe than what most Big Bang models would predict. We're going to have to make significant revisions in the Big Bang model. Some popular articles actually claim that the Big Bang model has been proven incorrect by the James Webb. Well, it's actually quite the opposite. And, uh, you know, I'm old enough as an astronomer to say this is deja vu. I remember when the first quasars were being discovered in the 1960s. And the people were saying, these quasars are way too bright and too close to fit Big Bang cosmology. And I remember as a young student saying, well, this is exactly what I would expect. The first quasars we're going to find are the brightest ones. So I'm not at all surprised that we're finding ones that are bright and nearby. Those are the easiest ones to detect. Well, now we have a catalog of millions of quasars. And the Big Bang model predicted that most of these quasars uh, would be distant and uh, wouldn't be as bright as a 3C273. Well, that's proven to be correct. Uh, you know, it just took time 
for telescopes to do deep enough surveys to actually do a definitive test on which Big Bang model is best fitting the observations. We're dealing with a similar situation with the James Webb Space Telescope. It was put up, uh, one purpose was to find the characteristics of the earliest galaxies in the universe. And so uh, the ones that have found first were the biggest and the brightest. And people were saying, hey, we're finding way too many of these big, bright ones. They shouldn't be uh, common. They should be rare. I remember telling people a year ago, just wait. Wait for the deep images from the James Webb Space Telescope. And I remember it was about nine months ago, the first of these deep images. Uh, It was a 30-hour exposure. And they found 50,000 distant faint galaxies and only a handful of bright ones. And so, again, that's what you'd expect from Big Bang cosmology, uh, that the faint small ones would dominate in number compared to the big bright ones. But the faint small ones are going to be much more difficult to detect. They're only going to be detected by long-term exposures. Now, there is on the uh, uh, schedule for the James Webb to do what they did with the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, where they took uh, a million-second exposure. That was two weeks looking at one piece of the sky and observing it steadily for a two-week period. It's called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field. Well, so far, James Webb has taken three images where they've had more than 10 hours of exposure time. All three of those show tens of thousands of distant faint galaxies. Uh, But there is a plan to push that up to several hundred hours, maybe even a thousand hours. And, uh, you know, we're going to have to wait for those really deep uh, exposures to really put a test of Big Bang cosmology. And keep in mind, when they talk about the standard Big Bang creation model, it's a family of models. We have dozens of models that fit under the title Standard Big Bang Creation Model. And the purpose of the James Webb was to find which of those Big Bang models correctly describes the early history of the universe. And to really get a handle on that, James Webb needs to find the characteristics of the first stars. For a long time, astronomers knew the characteristics of the very first stars in the universe will determine what the characteristics of the first galaxies look like. And so to really come up with a deeper knowledge of what kind of Big Bang creation model uh, correctly describes the universe, we're going to need to explore what's called the cosmic dawn, the first moment when stars begin to shine, when the universe transitions from being pervasively dark to where you now have light from the first stars. And it's going to take a combination of the James Webb Space Telescope and a project that's going to be put on the backside of the moon next year, which is to put some very low-frequency radio telescopes. And as those radio telescopes, you can't do that on, on on the Earth. There's way too much radio interference, and the atmosphere blocks out those waves. But on the backside of the moon, you're protected from radio interference from the Earth because the uh, the moon blocks out the Earth, and you don't have an ionosphere. And so 
it's the first telescope that's going to be able to explore uh, that part of the electromagnetic spectrum, which has never been available until now to astronomers. But it's that part of the spectrum that's going to give us insights on the characteristics of the universe's first stars, what astronomers call uh, the, uh, you know, uh, the dawn of the universe, uh, the first light of the universe. And I've written articles on this. They're already up at our reasons.org website about uh, what we can look forward to in the next two years uh, from these radio telescopes and uh, from James Webb. And by the way, the European Space Agency has sent another big telescope uh, to the L2 Lagrange point. It's going to join the James Webb Space Telescope. Oh. Yeah, it's all, it's... It's actually there now. They're getting it ready to begin observations. Unlike James Webb, it's going to be able to image millions of galaxies in every image. It's a very wide field uh, telescope, and uh, they're using that to explore what's called baryon acoustic oscillations, which is another tool for getting insights on the early history of the universe. It's and it's that L2, it's about a million miles away from the Earth, uh, where telescopes share the same orbit of the Earth, but at that point, they're stable relative to their distance from the Earth. And one reason why there's so much investment in that Lagrange point, it's free of satellite interference. I mean, if you look at raw images from the Hubble Space Telescope, you'll see that they're slashed by the trails of satellites. So when a satellite goes by, it leaves a light trail, and already it's significantly degrading the quality of Hubble Space Telescope images, just like it degrades the quality uh, from ground-based telescopes. I've seen raw images where you see as many as 30 satellite tracks across the image, and the tracks are way brighter than what astronomers are trying to detect. That's and so that's kind of depressing. It's depressing, uh, and there's plans to put up a quarter of a million satellites in the next decade. Goodness gracious! When that happens, it could ruin ground-based astronomy. Yeah, and it's actually going to spoil amateur astronomy because the media would be seeing all this light right. uh, from satellites. Right. I saw. Um, I have a ten-inch telescope in my backyard. And I live significantly about an hour away from the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, but I've noticed over the years that I've been out here in the country that uh, the the light pollution that is increasing from the Metroplex in my eastern horizon has just grown by leaps and bounds, um, people moving to the, the Metroplex over the last 10 years. Uh, it's sad. We are losing our night sky, and, and, and there's, uh, there's some institutions and organizations, uh, International Dark Skies, that are all about uh, the preservation of our night skies, but uh, they are becoming... Uh, I-, I talked to a gentleman who was the former president of the International Dark Sky Association uh, a couple summers ago, and uh, uh, he told me about this burgeoning resurgence in astro-tourism, where people go on vacations to dark sky spots just to have a look at the night sky that was uh, that is becoming rarer and rarer for people to, to see. So I think it's it's uh, it's sad to hear this that uh, the technology that we so uh, love and enjoy and take for granted is is sort of blocking out our views of the cosmos. Um, Doctor Ross, I wanted to I, do you know? I'm sure you do. 
Uh, do you know the astronomer Martin Harwit? Have you ever chatted with Martin, Dr. Harwit? I've not met him personally. I know the name, but I've not met him personally. He was at Cornell in he's, – he's still alive. I think he's in his 90s. He was at Cornell in the 1970s uh, when Sagan first got to Cornell, Carl Sagan. And he wrote a book, and I think it's in its fourth or fifth printing now. He wrote a book in the, in the 1970s, first edition, called Astrophysical Concepts. I wanted to get your take on this because I thought it was so amusing. Uh, and he's not a fringe astronomer, so let me just say that. Very reputable astronomer and in, in, in at Cornell. So he's writing this in Cornell, and he says – he talking about we we're talking about this getting back to star formation. He says, um, the association of dust clouds with recently formed stars is not absolute proof that stars form from these clouds. He suggests that some causal relation presumably exists. But then he asks this question. Is it impossible that stars just form out of nothing at all and that a lot of dust gets raised in the process? Perhaps stars do form out of nothing, exclamation point. Is that is, – is, has there has, – obviously there's been more studies done since 1973 on star formation. But I know there's this – this continual problem of population three stars, maybe a, a scant lack of evidence for these things, and people are still kind of scratching their head about how stars form. What have, are people still suggesting stellar ex nihilo, <laughs> or is that is that even a serious consideration, or was Dr. Harwit just frustrated? I couldn't tell, but I thought that that quote was fascinating there in 1973. What do you think? Well, yeah, that's 1973, and I remember <laughs> back then that star formation was considered a mystery. Mm -hmm. um, it's still got some mystery to it, but it's nothing like it was back in the 1970s. Uh, astronomers have actually observed stars forming out of giant molecular clouds. That's been one of the major achievements of the James Webb Space Telescope, is to actually take detailed uh, images of these giant molecular clouds where we see new stars forming. And so astronomers have now looked at millions of uh, stars at different stages of formation. Uh, their understanding is a lot deeper than was in the past. Uh, but there's still the issue. Okay, we have a good understanding of how stars form today. You know, if you got dust, uh, that dust is going to act as a way uh, to prevent uh, the expanding star from dissipating, gravity will take over. The real challenge is, what about stars that form at the very beginning after the Big Bang, where all you got is hydrogen and helium and a trace amount of lithium? Uh, there you don't have the uh, cooling effects of dust and the light-blocking effects of dust. How does that work? Well, that's one of the missions of the James Webb Space Telescope, as one of the missions of this radio telescope that they're going to be putting on the backside of the moon is actually to determine how do those stars that have only hydrogen and helium and a trace amount of lithium in the universe work. Well, astronomers know uh, that as the universe cools from the Big Bang, you get hydrogen and uh, you get three other molecules forming. Uh, you get um, hydrogen two hydrogen-3, and then uh, helium hydride, which is helium plus a hydrogen. And so the universe begins with three possible molecules. And I wrote another article that you'll see at reasons.org saying, a year ago they discovered that the helium hydride plays a crucial role 
in enabling the hydrogen two and the hydrogen three uh, to provide sufficient cooling that these first stars can condense without any carbon or nitrogen or oxygen being around at all. Uh, however, what's still not known is okay with these three molecules, uh, we can get stars forming, but what kind of stars form? And so there's different models out there saying that these first stars are going to be between 20 and 80 times the mass of our star, the sun. Some are saying yes, but uh, you're also going to get a number that are two to 500 times the mass of our star, the sun. I wrote a paper on one article uh, that was saying maybe even more than 500 times the mass of our star, the sun. Others saying the majority are going to be small mass stars. But that's where we already have, quote, discovered population three stars. We've found in our own galaxy. And what's interesting about our galaxy, we know that it's 13 billion years old, maybe a little older. So when people talk about, hey, uh, these first galaxies that the James Webb Space Telescope are finding, they're big and they're uh, looking at them more than 13 billion light years away. Keep in mind, uh, our Milky Way galaxy is one such galaxy. So we know that's not out of the question. We live in such a galaxy. So Interesting. Uh, but, we, but we have found what's interesting about our Milky Way galaxy, it's not had a merger event with any other large dwarf galaxy for the last 11 billion years, which means the very extreme outskirts of our Milky Way galaxy have been undisturbed. Uh, literally for 11 billion years, which means in our own Milky Way galaxy, we have the probability of finding small mass population three stars. And again, I've written articles on this making the point we've already found three. Three that we know were small mass population three stars. However, because they're small in mass, they take tens of millions of years to form out of a gas cloud and become a star. And during those tens of millions of years, they get polluted by the exploded ashes from the very high mass population three stars. But they get polluted in a very different way than if they're polluted by the population two stars. So that's how we've been able to identify in our own galaxy population three stars. So the question is, because that's fascinating, I've heard people say that there is no, as of yet, there is no definitive evidence for population three stars, that it, that there's debate about whether or not we've actually found these, or that if we found them, there should be much more than the amount that we have found. In other words, they should be uh, in abundance everywhere, just like every other star. But uh, it, it's just, I've, I've never heard anybody say that, that, that we actually actually have the evidence of these things. So that's fascinating. Yeah, we do have the evidence. Uh, we have yet to find, however, a star that has only hydrogen, helium, trace amount of lithium. Okay, that's it. That's it. Okay. I'm not sure James Webb's going to be able to pull that off because stars that are only composed of hydrogen, helium, and lithium, uh, they're going to burn up very rapidly. You know, in less than a million years, they go through their whole burning because the greater the mass of the star, the faster it burns up. Gotcha. And so that means the only way you're going to find those stars is to look 13.6 uh, billion light years away. 
A single star, even if it's 500 times the mass of our star, the sun, James Webb does not have the power to detect it. Gotcha. We would need a much bigger telescope. However, astronomers are optimistic. Maybe we can find a cluster of these stars where they're all more than 200 times the mass of our star, the sun, in which case there will be very little pollution, and uh, we should be able to pick that up. But the bottom line is we've already found population three stars that are at the low mass range. And uh, their spectra tells us, for example, they have 30 million times less iron in them than the sun has. And to have that little iron, it means that they could only have been polluted by very high mass population three stars. They could not have been polluted by second generation stars. Gotcha. Gotcha. So we've already found three of them in our galaxy alone. Okay. However, to find them in other galaxies, it would have to be a spiral galaxy like our galaxy that has had no encounters with large uh, dwarf galaxies uh, for at least the last 10 billion years. And unfortunately, the only galaxy that meets that criteria where we could possibly observe these stars is the Milky Way. Every other gotcha. spiral galaxy in our vicinity uh, has had uh, these encounters. Our Milky Way galaxy is alone and uh, not having had uh, any of those encounters. And by the way, that's a requirement for advanced life. You can't live in a spiral galaxy that's had a more recent disturbance. Okay, because you have to have stability within the galaxy itself to support a solar system like ours. In- yeah, you need highly symmetrical spiral arms. And you only get that if there's been no recent encounters. And we're pretty sure that our Milky Way is a barred spiral, even though we can't see it for sure. Yeah, yeah. So you'd almost. Well, we can actually see it. We can. You can. You've mapped it out. Yeah, it's been mapped. Okay. And so I, I meant like a a a camera that's gone out and taken a top-down picture of us. We don't have that, but we have. No, no, we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> um. So. Uh, I just a couple of quick things as we're wrapping up here, and I'll kind of throw them all together in one question. Uh, the first one is uh, kind of a a lot of the popular pictures, especially the one uh, that uh, was unveiled by our president uh, last year. Um, I think it was last year. Yeah, uh, July 11th of 2022, President Biden unveiled the SMACS 0723 uh, Webb's first deep field, as it was christened. And in this photograph, Dr. Ross, is a, a bunch of streaks uh, that, that look like we're looking into a, sort of like the bottom of a drinking glass, if you will. Right, uh, right. Th- these streaky things are, are fascinating. And I know that the public has seen a lot of these pictures and are scratching their heads going, what what in the world is a, a gravitational lens? So maybe we could talk about that just a little bit. And then as you do talk about that, I, I one of my favorite verses in Scripture, and I'd like you to sort of tie this all together for the glory of God, is Psalm 33, 6, uh, where it says that uh, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and the stars by the word of his mouth or the breath of his mouth, as, as some say. And so uh, as an astrophysicist and a Christian is, as wonderful as the science is, just how much more wonderful does this make the God who created it all? So a little primer on what these bendy, wispy things are in the James Webb images that we're seeing, and then how how does the breath or the word of the Lord 
what does this say of God whose breath and whose word can create things like this? It's fascinating. So can, right. kind of wrap it up on that. Well, it was Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity that he published in 1916 uh, that said that uh, gravity will bend light. And uh, it was the 1919 solar eclipse in Brazil uh, where Sir Arthur Eddington actually proved that Einstein's prediction was correct. Uh, when they looked at this solar eclipse, they noticed that the positions of stars uh, near the image of the sun uh, change and change in a way uh, that fit uh, what Einstein's theory of general relativity predicted. Well, what's happened in the latter part of the 20th century and the 21st century, astronomers have said, hey, maybe we can use this uh, uh, phenomena to actually come up with a super telescope. So, for example, what you're seeing in those James Webb Space Telescope images, you see these circles of light or partial circles of light. And what's going on is that astronomers will use a James Webb Space Telescope and they look for uh, a massive cluster of galaxies where the mass is sufficient that it actually will bend the light that goes by it. And so they're actually able to image a single galaxy behind this cluster of galaxies. And uh, they use the cluster of galaxies to magnify the power of the James Webb Space Telescope. And in some cases, the magnification effect is a factor of 8,000 times. So it actually makes a James Webb Space Telescope or the Hubble Space Telescope, 8,000 times more powerful than it otherwise would be. And so astronomers use this uh, phenomena of gravitational lensing to actually get detailed understanding of extremely distant galaxies whose light has been bent or warped uh, around the image of the intervening cluster of galaxies or supermassive galaxy. And if you've got a perfect alignment uh, that distant galaxy will be distorted to become a circle uh, around the uh, cluster, the core of the cluster of galaxies. And there's actually images that I could show you where we actually see a perfect circle of light around the gravitational lens. Other cases where it's slightly off-center, you might get three or four points of light, or you get a partial curve of a circle. You only get to see, say, a third of the circle, not all of the circle. Uh, but even there, uh, where you've got a partial gravitational lens, we can learn a lot about that much more distant galaxy that's being gravitationally lensed. So that's a cheap way of uh, greatly enhancing the power of your telescope. Seems like somebody knew we were coming, Dr. Ross. We got L2, our telescopes fit nicely. We got extra eyepieces for our telescopes way out there in deep space. <laughs> we even have, uh, I, the web even discovered a question mark the other day. I was watching, I saw that video. Have you seen the question mark? <laughs> have you seen? I've seen the question mark and it's not the only one. <laughs> in fact, a much near, more nearby such question mark, I put on the book cover of my book, why the universe is the way it is. It's actually a better question mark. <laughs> really? Uh, than they just imaged, right? Oh, wow. So that's not uncommon. Okay. And incidentally, we use gravitational lenses to detect planets. And so like, we'll look towards the center of our galaxy where we got a high density of stars, where we get a single star that acts as a gravitational lens 
and images a much more distant star where we can actually see directly the planets that are orbiting it. Wow. So this is a very powerful technique that astronomers are using. And as far as that verse in the Bible goes, yes, frequently you see in the Bible that God speaks and things happen. Mm. I mean, you see that in the Gospels. Right. Uh, Jesus would speak and the waves would quiet or the storm would quiet. He would speak and a demon would be cast out. And that passage in Psalm 33 is making the point. When God speaks, uh, things happen. Uh, he spoke the universe into existence. A time will come in the future when the full number of humans that God intends to redeem have been redeemed, and then God will speak the universe out of existence. Mm. And then you look at what it tells us in uh, chapter 2 of Genesis. Uh, God breathed into Adam, and he became a living being. Mm. So there's something about the breath of God. There's something about the voice of God that's got creative power. That's amazing to me. It just... It's like Mark's gospel, the theme in Mark's gospel. I've been studying Mark this year, uh, and I'm reading a commentary by R.T. France that goes along with it. And France is pointing out just in the early chapters of Mark and all throughout Mark, the consistent theme is that Mark is is constantly recording people's amazement and fear and astonishment of what Jesus right. is doing. And if this guy's just a failed apocalyptic prophet, uh, just some rebel without a with a lost cause, uh, poking the giant bear, the Pharisees in Rome, there would be no fear and amazement. This 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 sort of rabbinical rabble rouser would be a dime a dozen. Um, but these people were afraid and amazed and struck by his authority of his words. No man has ever spoken like this. The disciples don't get it. They're afraid. And it really boils down to as the disciples. I mean, to me, this is what makes Mark so so believable and real is the disciples' hardness of heart. These are these are Jesus's students, and they're afraid because they don't get it. Um, and I, I find a, a kindred spirit <laughs> with the disciples because on those moments where I look into the universe or where I'm reading scripture and I see really who Jesus is, Doctor Ross, it's not a little scary to to think that there is a being who can speak this kind of creation into existence. I mean, we're talking about stars with multi-million mile diameters and galaxies with hundreds and thousands of light years across uh, the universe itself. Who is this God? If you stop and contemplate and pause, as David did in Psalm 8, you are struck with wonder. Who am I, God, that you would care for me? It's truly humbling. And one of the things I love about astronomy and looking at the universe is thinking of God's care and his faithfulness uh, that he commends to us through the fixed order which he has made. Well, you look at what the disciples said, where they said, even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, of course, he created it all. Of course, they're going to obey him. That just makes logical sense. But, you know, when you're experiencing a storm of that magnitude, uh, you're not necessarily using your logic and reason and saying, oh, yeah, this was stated in the Old Testament. Uh, this would make perfect sense. Uh, you know, and I'm also amazed by what it says in the Gospel of John, uh, where they sent soldiers to arrest Jesus. And the soldiers came back and they said, well, where's Jesus? They said, we've never heard a man speak like this. They were yeah. stunned by uh, the preaching he was giving to such a degree. They said, huh, we're not arresting this guy. Right, right. No, I mean, when he came, comes out to arrest him, they said, whom do you seek? And they all fall backwards. 
<laughs> they all fall backwards, yeah, right? Yeah, that's I love that passage. And they're like, "Oh, okay, who is this guy?" <laughs> hey, um, yeah. but uh, thank you so much, Doctor Ross. Uh, final thoughts on for our audience. We have some uh, skeptic friends as well as believers who listen to this, uh, just some final concluding thoughts about uh, aliens and the demonic and some real quick uh, two-minute advice about what to do if, in case you encounter this or as you're going through the popular literature or videos. What's a Christian, what should a Christian and a non-Christian think about uh, aliens and UAPs? Well, as we write in our book, Lights in the Sky and Little Green Men, what we're offering is a scientifically testable model. And the point is, and this is based on the Bible and also my experience, the only way you're going to have encounters, and I'm talking about the 1% residual that can't be naturally explained, that only happens to people who have opened doors to the occult, they're involved in the occult, uh, and or they have a relationship, a close relationship with someone who's involved in the occult, and if you close those doors to that occult activity, that will be the end of your UFO encounters. These demons, these fallen angels, need permission to invade your life. Take away the permission, that will be the end of your encounters. Now, the reverse is also true. If you begin to explore the occult, and what's really going on in the occult is that people are wanting power, and these fallen angels are more than willing to provide you with power, but you sacrifice truth as a result. And so that's a key lesson. Always give higher priority to truth than you do to power. That will protect you. But also tells us in First John, test the spirits to see uh, where they're from and what their motives and objectives are. Uh, so if you open the doors of the occult, high probability this is going to happen to you. Close the doors. That'll be the end of your encounters. It explains why, for example, when I went to the Soviet Union in the 1980s and 1990s, I found many scientists who had these encounters with UFOs. When I went back in the latter part of the 90s, uh, that had significantly dropped. Why? Because during the Soviet Union, the Soviet government was sponsoring research on occult physics. Uh, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that funding stopped. And that made a huge difference in the percentage of scientists who were having these experiences. I also saw that when I was a practicing astronomer. I mean, UFO phenomena, they most commonly happen at 3 a.m. in the morning along lonely country roads. Well, that's where we astronomers hang out, 3 a.m. in the morning on lonely country roads. And yet, and yet very few astronomers have UFO encounters. It's rare. But I remember two astronomers, every time they came on the telescope, they had a UFO encounter. And they were only on the telescope four or five hours a year. Uh, I was on the telescope 15, 1600 hours a year. Never saw anything. But those two astronomers were both deeply involved in the occult. And so, and again, we close the book off with, these are all the ways you invite demons to invade your life. Take away the invitations. That'll be the end of your encounters. Great advice, sir. Thank you so much for your patient cultivating work in the field of astrophysics and astronomy, a much needed uh, 
ministry and work in our day and age that uh, relies on science almost like a god, uh, as you know. Um, but uh, I appreciate your time and insight. It is a wonderful book, uh, even though it's 20 years old, still very much relevant. Uh, second edition coming out exactly when, sir? Do you know? Well, we haven't started writing it yet, so it'll probably be at least a year before it shows up. Okay. <laughs> However, All right. there's plenty of articles on our website that, that give you updates. Mm-hmm.